Well, greetings, everybody. I'm here with Matt Mayer. Matt is speaking at our Sizzling Summer Service tonight, and he's been at past retreats and Sizzling Summer, and I think Sunday morning. So, Matt, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be back with yeah. CC Delco. So, for those who aren't familiar with Matt's story, Matt's a pastor down at Coastal Christian in Ocean City. He's also an itinerant speaker. Uh, God's doing great things. Matt, just catch us up on ministry. What, what results are you seeing? What's God doing? Ministry, full-time, several different things going on. So responsibilities in Ocean City as the teaching pastor. So I touched down in the different ministries there, the adult fellowship, the student ministry. Just spoke at the women's ministry, which was really uh, quite a, an experience. And, of course, I oversee a ministry called Soldiers for Faith Ministry. So that is a power ministry. We do special events. We have a media production presence online. And we do call and conference Bible studies, which is our discipleship. So, you know, each moment of my week seems to be occupied with some form of ministry writing, whether it's blogs or writing sermons or speaking. So my wife and I are excited to just be used by God. So... I think your story can help some people because generally people who have feel called a ministry or what's God going to do in my life right away think they see a pastor in a pulpit. But you took a circuitous route, uh, which uh, is very interesting and a big part of your story, but you were a pro soccer player. Correct. And uh, sometimes God uses the things of our past. So tell us how soccer opened some doors and, and what God did in the whole, you know, run up to soccer. So, of course, being a former pro soccer player today, I'm able to use that background as a leverage to influence audiences that typically would be kind of turned off by. Certainly draws the interest of people in our athletic culture, yeah. So I, I use that to the advantage of sharing my testimony, and I'm able to, not only with that background, but of course, the decisions I made leading up to what I'll call the catalyst that yeah. redirected my life as a pro soccer player toward my ACL. And that particular week was, um, you know, uncertain about a future that would exist with being a pro. And I made a very egregious, reckless decision, which ended up being under the influence behind a, a wheel of a vehicle and wound up crashing. So that alone is tragic, but then to find out that the driver in the other vehicle passed away. Yeah. So my world imploded, and then the result of causing other people, other families, and the community pain that I could not do anything about. So that resulted in you spending time in prison. Why don't you share a little bit about that experience? Yeah, so obviously 10 months to the day. So March 7, 2009 is when this took place, and then January 7, 2010 is when I stood before a judge. So... I went away to prison on January 7th for the next 55 months of my life. But it was in that season where the Lord was doing a mighty work in my heart. Of course, I was an intellectual Christian. I knew the Bible inside and out. And it was in that period where the Lord began to refine and showed me basically that the foundation of faith that was laid as as a kid growing up was the rock, the bedrock that I needed to live by. So... I can tell story after story about God's redemption. Was there somebody influential in prison, or was it just your alone time with God in the Bible? What what really sparked faith? It was the alone time with the Lord every morning. I noticed that there was a very abrupt culture there. When I say abrupt, I mean by 6 a.m. every morning, there's chaos, confusion, and cursing. And I realized if I wait for that, 
to start my day, I'm going to be swallowed by it. Yeah. So it didn't take long to say, I got to get up earlier than that. I say, I got up earlier than hell and I spent time in isolation with the word of God open before me. And it was there that I found his peace, real peace. And that's what became attractive to a lot of my peers. They saw this peace, a young man in jail, and they couldn't reconcile it to themselves. They couldn't understand how I was able to navigate that world, yet look like I was doing it at such peace. Now, in Scripture and, and even in our lives, it seems like some people have to hit rock bottom mm. and then believe truth. Other people are given a decision. Jesus comes to the rich young ruler. He's certainly not at rock bottom. Right. He comes to Nicodemus, a religious leader. Everybody comes to the fork in the road. Do you think personally in your life you had to hit rock bottom? I could answer that with my whole heart and say yes. I believe in hindsight as I think about the way I was living, successful accomplishments on the surface so people would have looked at my life and said I want what he has but there was such shallowness to it and mm. emptiness to it and I believe any other decision I made that didn't have those catastrophic results mm. where my hands caused the death of an innocent man yeah. there would have been nothing else in my life that I could have done that would have got my attention the way that did that was such a humbling and humiliating experience where I was stripped of everything I thought was my identity, mm. my security. And it was right there, like you just said, I hit rock bottom to discover Christ was the rock at the bottom. Now, try and help somebody listening with guilt. Mm. Um, a lot of people can't get over guilt for small things or the way they raise their children or yeah. smaller decisions they've made that haven't caused great harm. And even though they know freedom in Christ, they know what the scriptures say, you yeah. know, God is a forgiving God, uh, guilt, talk about guilt. Yeah. How did you overcome the guilt? Do you still live with it? Is it a daily giving over to God? Like, Great help us get through guilt. First and foremost, I want to be very clear when I say guilt is a requirement of grace. You need to feel guilty. It's really good. That drives you to the cross. Yeah. So early on, I remember struggling with great guilt. My, my actions took someone's life. Yeah. And I, I say that often and frequent to remind anybody that's listening the severity of what I did. Yeah. But I remember wrestling with that thought that if I hold on to a guilt that according to the Christian faith, Jesus Christ died for every sin, past, present, and future, what I'm essentially saying to God in his goodness and his grace and his love is that what I did is greater than what you did, Jesus yeah. That my guilt is heavier than your sacrifice. And it hit me so hard that I literally was like, whoa, I dare not put myself in the position to think that what I did is greater than what Jesus did. And that's a renewal process every day. It'll yeah. hit me in the middle of a presentation or speaking in a high school. I'll just get overcome with guilt. And I have to remember that the cross is there exactly. as the greatest equalizer of mankind. It literally lays the groundwork of all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then on the other side of that is this great grace that you can receive a free gift. If you willingly receive this gift, you can walk into freedom. Someone once told me grace not only saves us, but it's the fuel we live by. So we true. need grace every day. Now, help the, help the other person who's saying, I was never in prison. I never killed anybody. Mm -hmm. I'm on the PTA. I did everything yeah. right, which was you before the accident. Correct. So help that person. That person. I can identify with that person as well. I say very quickly and succinctly that good cannot get you to God. 
the Bible is very clear. There's nothing that we can do in our good efforts, our good intentions, our good works that can be good enough to get us to God. Yeah. So a lot of times we think that, you know, I'm not as bad as my neighbor or I didn't do what that soccer player did. However, in God's economy, he's saying there's none righteous. No, not one. And that's the point. Because at the end of the day, if you're stuck with have my good works outweighed my bad, that is quite a gamble. Yeah. And as as God has it, he says, no, I want you to understand you're just a sinner and you need equally a savior. So a lot of times when we see somebody who, who's done something publicly reckless, it's easy to compare and say, I'm not that bad. Yeah. But as I'm going to be sharing at Sizzling Summer, unless this is after, if you guys are listening to this after, I've already shared the idea behind being an older brother. Jesus tells a story about two sons and a father. And the older brother was angry that the younger brother was restored. And in that, you see, both were just as lost. Both equally lost. Both equally need a Savior. We use a phrase, we have to get people unsaved before we can get them saved. Because yeah. everybody's banking on the curve. Everybody's banking on good works. So you get out of prison. Were you going to go back to, I mean, obviously Christ is a big part of your life. Were you going to go back to being a regular guy, a soccer player, a coach? Or did God put ministry in your heart? What, when those doors opened, what, what were you thinking? It's amazing to see that in the preliminary stages of the legal process, I was already invited to go share my testimony, my story. So this is pre-incarceration, where the Lord was not only affirming the gift that he gave me, and even before that, growing up as a teenager, the opportunities that God gave me that I didn't recognize yeah. to talk or teach right. or speak. And there were people that would come alongside and say, you have a gift to do this. You should be doing this. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm a soccer player. But it's amazing how the Lord say, no, I've yeah. deposited a gift in you, and I'm going to get mine, essentially. I'm going to get a return on my investment. So I was able to speak pre-prison. So it was only natural while I was in prison to get involved in ministry, church behind the wall. And, of course, as the Lord kept moving my heart closer to um, what he has called me to do, when I got out, it was an unleashing of this passion and redemption that the Lord did in, in my life. So I didn't have any expectations of what that would look like, except for the fact that I knew God would make much of himself through the individual who allows him to do so. So now, now you know, obviously God's opened doors. You're speaking at churches. You're, you're at a local church. What keeps you grounded? What keeps you out of the quote-unquote Christian industry? How do you keep close to God and the vibrancy you know, when I marry people, I tell them, look, my goal is if 20 years from now I see you, you would have what you have right now. You have no kids, no money, no house, no degrees. But if you have what you have right now, the love for one another, you'll have succeeded. How do you say, how do you follow hard after God in the midst of all the Christian community? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's a challenge for anybody in full-time ministry yeah. because it's easy to do work for God. For God and miss the work with God. Yeah. I think part of my story and the reminder is my wife is an ever-present reminder of God's faithfulness. Mm. But not only that, as my wife comes alongside of me, her name's Sarah, the encouragement that I get from her, the influence I get from her in private, which allows me to be an influence in public, but all my sentencing day, there was this scene that you can actually go online and check it out. There's a video of this exact scene where I believe this scene was God's way of searing into my soul such forgiveness. And it was the forgiveness that was extended to me by my victim's oldest son. 
His name was Noon. Mm. And in a moment where he was engaging the courtroom with anger, telling them how he heard about his father dying, he then stopped. And in this moment of clarity and composure, he said to me, but I forgive you, my brother. And reminding myself, Mm. literally, visually in my mind, that the Lord reached down from heaven in that moment when I didn't deserve it and he gave me forgiveness. That's my reminder every day. It just humbles me. It breaks me. Every single day in my heart, I can never forget that moment. I think from my past, the moment you forget those moments in your life, everybody has some type of moment like that, the forgiveness or an impact of a family member or friend on your life. The moment you forget those moments, complacency sets in. Mm. And I believe a lot of ministers can get caught up in complacency, which is a very dangerous place to be. So I got saved 35 years ago. Obviously, I've been a pastor for 25 years. You're a little closer to the culture than I am. You're, you're a little closer to coming out of the world. Mm. Uh, what's the greatest battle the church has as we look at, as we look at culture, especially young culture? I'm talking yeah. maybe senior high through 35-year-olds. I'd say the church, the danger of the church is conformity to the world. We want to look like the world. We think that what the world's doing is effective in reaching that audience, that culture, that that teenager and we're like we if we do what they do but as long as we include Add Jesus the vocabulary yeah. of Jesus right. and God but it's amazing the word of God is all you really need when the word of God is preached properly when men women children teenagers alike are challenged by the word of God reminded that there's a creator and he gave us his son i believe that is all you need now of course there are things we use in the church to attract people to come in. We don't want it to be threatening by any means. That's probably the biggest turnoff. I'm not going to church. In fact, I just was in New York recently, and we sat down in a restaurant, and there was a group next to us, and a conversation was engaged, and somehow through the conversation, they discover I'm a pastor, and they saw my tattoos, and the guy said, I cannot believe this. You don't look like the pastor that I have yeah. in my mind. Still hard to believe after all these years. That's I get it too. It, it's it's very strange. So it was amazing just that that there was a gap or or a barrier yeah. that kept these guys from understanding God's economy. And here I am talking about Jesus, telling my story to these guys, and they were just completely interested. So. I mean, I think that's the biggest problem for us in ministry is to be be mindful that we're not conforming to the world. Matt, I, I think, I don't think, I, I know you have the gift of personal evangelism uh, because I think wherever you go, you're effective. Uh, I've seen people, they just have the gift of evangelism. Try and help somebody listening who is not outgoing, not willing to share their faith in a restaurant, but we're all called to preach the gospel. We're all right. called to be part of the Great Commission. And I know the famous quote, say that we, we don't have to say it, we just have to live our lives and not open our mouths. But I think we do have to open our mouths. Yeah. Um, we pray for boldness, we do all these things. But, but really, the reason I'm asking the question is nothing brings more joy to us, I think, when we see someone starting to connect with God. Yeah. Kind of like the angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner comes to That's salvation. Right. So Yeah, happier the feet. Yeah. What would you say to those people who maybe are just a little timid or shy about sharing their faith? Sure. Uh, uh, the Apostle Paul would write something that has been quoted over and over, that I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he said that because there were people in ministry with him that were ashamed because their lives were in jeopardy. 
So Paul was making a stand saying, I am not ashamed to mention the name of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation for anyone who believes. And that's the most remarkable part, but that we are carriers of the gospel, the carriers of the salvation that God has entrusted to us, which could be the hinge that somebody needs to see or hear to affect their eternity. Mm. So I know everybody's wired differently. Not everybody's outgoing with their personality. However, in a world that is hell-bent on propagating lies, if we're the ones that are carrying truth, then shouldn't we be just as relentless as sharing it? And, yeah. I, and I believe, again, sometimes our countenance, our manners, our eye contact, all of that is speaking on behalf of God. Right. And that could be enough for somebody to say, you're different. You smile all the time. You have a peace about you. And sometimes those very engagements are enough for you to introduce, well, this is why. It's my faith in Jesus Christ. And that's all you have to say. Yeah. So every week after I preach, I stand at the end of the stage and hear a lot of parents who, I just found out my son is on heroin. Mm. Uh, my, my husband is in prison. My wife just went to rehab. Uh, obviously, your parents had to hear that about you. Yes. Uh, what, what would you say to those parents? Wow. Well, those parents out there that are listening, that we serve a faithful God, sovereign God, and even in those very dire moments where a son or a daughter may make a decision, addicted to a drug, a wayward lifestyle, prodigal in nature— it's in those moments that the Lord is not only in control, but he's doing a work in their hearts. And I remember some of the most powerful testimonies came from my mother and father about the things they could not control, but it drove them to their knees to reach out to a God who is always in control. So don't lose the hope that God is in control. I believe in those moments where things are chaotic and you are reaching for uh, a resolution, you're wanting that child to come back, they're hooked on heroin. You hear that more and more, which is heartbreaking. Don't lose the hope that God has a plan. And I know that might sound like a platitude, but... Yeah, it was an eye-opener for me. I was in a recovery meeting, and and um, a person was sharing how someone new came in and said, oh my gosh, my son's on heroin. It's the end of the world. And the beauty of recovery ministry is somebody was there to say, yeah, but so was my son, That's and right. now he's free. And I think that's what the world doesn't have. They don't have the success stories to lean on that when God comes in the picture, you know, redemption is possible. That's right. That's right. I think that's what makes for empathy. Yeah. Those who have felt it and can actually minister out of that pain. Yeah. So, Matt, obviously uh, God's doing great things. You probably feel like you're in your sweet spot right now. Has God spoken to you anything about the future? Um things he might be calling you to, or you just take them one day at a time? One day at a time, but what I do know is he has been focusing the platform that he has my wife and I on. Meaning, when I first got out of prison, we were all over the place. Mm. We were speaking in children's ministries, student <laughs> ministries. I was at warden's conferences. I was in medical centers. I was Jeez. preaching, teaching, talking anywhere a door opened. But over the past few years, I feel like the Lord has been really refocusing the platform. And I believe it's helped me make decisions on whether or not we should go do a certain event or a certain venue or yeah. get involved in a certain ministry. So I don't know where that's going. Right. But I do know as long as my wife and I, we stay hand in hand, stay at the foot of the cross, the Lord will always provide opportunities for us to point to him. 
I was once the younger generation, and now I get to see another generation come, and I'm very bullish on the church when I see people like you and your wife and people that God's raising up. Um, so thanks for being here, and I uh, hope you're a blessing to all those that listen. Thank you so much for having me. Okay.